0: hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how plain and safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Planet It Safe podcast. I am glad that you're listening today and I am excited to share with all of you a conversation I had with a colleague and a friend of mine, Michael Hedy. In this conversation, you will hear how Michael navigated different fears, worries and anxieties in the past. How he navigates those struggles now, and how he made a shift from being stuck sometimes with anxiety to a place in which he's thriving, he's teaching, he's consulting, he's an expert on anxiety struggles. On my side, I can tell you that it was a very sweet conversation. It was real, it was intimate. And I think I very, very much appreciate how Mike describes his internal process in a way that a lot of people dealing with any form of fear-based struggles could relate to. I will invite you to pay in particular attention to how avoidance may show up in very subtle ways how you can decide how you want to respond in a given moment and how you can ask yourself key questions to make a shift from being stuck to handle a situation effectively. Let me know what you think of this interview and if you have any curiosity about it or any question about fear-based struggles and acceptance and commitment therapy or behavioral interventions or exposure, just send me an email. I will definitely get back to you. On another note, I want to say thank you so much to all of you who wrote me about the article I wrote on uncertainty, why it sucks, why it matters, and what you can do about it. For those of you that didn't read this article, it's like a 15, 20 minutes read, but I think it will give you a context of how we experience uncertainty, ambiguity, and unknown situations in every single day in our life. And you will also hear four or five particular skills that you can put into action right away. The article is in my website, and the website is www.thisisdoctorz.com. I am going to spell it just in case. It's z.com. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. And here is the interview with Michael Hedy. Mike, good to see you and super excited to chat with you in the Playing It Safe podcast.
1: I'm really excited to be here. Thank you.
0: Maybe you can start by introducing yourself and sharing with our listeners what are you doing these days?
1: Sure. I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. I am the co-director, co-owner of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute along with Dr. Sarah Crawley, who is my other co-director, and Sally Winston, who is the founder and executive director. We treat anxiety disorders, OCD, across the lifespan, from four years old to 100 years old. And right now we're completely telehealth because we're in the sort of shelter-in-place COVID-19. And that's what I've been doing for the last 13 years.
0: What a treat to have your expertise today. And I thought that for today, we can chat about how to handle the fear of making mistakes. So many times we have this fear of things going wrong or this fear of being a failure and we want to do everything right and perfect. So I would love to hear how you have experienced that fear, maybe in your personal or professional life or in your work with clients.
1: I certainly see it with myself. I think, you know, as you are a young professional trying to make your mark, trying to establish yourself, there is that fear that you have to live up to some expectations, that a mistake along that way might derail you and prevent you perhaps from getting what you want or might make you look less than good or exceptional in the eyes of other people who you want to look exceptional in front of. When I first got out of grad school, I started doing adjunct professor job. I had an adjunct professor job at my uh, undergrad, my alma mater. And I was 25 and I'm teaching, you know, 18 and 19 year old undergrad students. And I felt like a complete fraud, but I desperately wanted to prove myself to be really smart. And anytime I made a mistake in the class, like you're just on display for 30 students, you know, your fit, my face would get red and I would feel stupid. And, you know, you get feedback at the end of each semester and you start to realize that the people who do comment, many of them don't, but -hmm. the students who did comment, it was usually pretty good feedback.
2: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, uh, he's passionate. He really knows his stuff. And those made me feel really really good. Mm -hmm. It also set up a future standard that I had to kind of like be that or more Uh I couldn't falter below that. Like I set this bar for myself and suddenly I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, like now I got to live up to this bar that other people set for me or at least I perceived it that way.
0: Mike, thank you so much for sharing with us this personal experience and how at the beginning of your career there were these high standards about how you're supposed to be as a professional and how you're supposed to live up to those expectations. I think a lot of us will struggle with this wanting to do things right and perfect, and especially when you're starting a new job or you're in a new relationship or sometimes when you're starting a new hobby. If we can go back on time to one of those moments in which you are teaching and you're trying to live up to those expectations about how you should perform in front of your students, And you are doing your best, teaching, and your mind starts coming up with those thoughts. Do I know what I am talking about? If you remember, how did you handle those moments? I am asking because I am always curious how we organize our actions, how we organize our behavior around particular fears that we experience at different times. So how was for you in those moments to handle those doubtful thoughts that were showing up about your teaching and about your performance?
1: You know, I wish I could say elegantly, but I think mostly I would avoid eye contact with the classroom. Mm -hmm. They probably didn't notice that, but I certainly was deliberately doing that. I would choose to stand behind the podium Mm -hmm. instead of wander around the class. Uh, stand behind the podium to sort of hide. At least that's kind of, I felt safer behind that podium in a way. And probably in a more functional way, I went back to my original purpose of being there, which wasn't to be entertaining or to be liked. It was to be informative. Mm -hmm. My job is to teach, to convey an idea. So I started focusing on that a lot less than how I was coming across And that was probably one of the more functional ways of handling it. So I think a combination of distraction and then focusing back on what the value was in that moment.
0: I think you are describing very nicely the subtlety of avoidant behaviors. Many times it's easy to catch avoidant behaviors because they are observable, right? But other times avoidance behaviors can be very subtle. In your case, it seems that you were there teaching in your classroom, but no one will have noticed that you were avoiding eye contact or that you were locating yourself in a safe spot in the classroom. So I think there is a lot to say about how many times we may not even know when we are sadly engaging in avoidant behaviors. Now, in the second part of your response, you mentioned how at some point you realized that your job is to teach, that your job is to convey an idea to your students. So I'm just curious, how did that shift happen that you went from engaging in some form of subtle avoidance to actually tap into what matters to you? to tap into what I will say your personal values?
1: That's a tough question. I think I stumbled into it back then. I mean, I might be able to articulate some perspective now having 13 years experience doing anxiety work, but at the time I, had, I was brand new to anxiety work and I was brand new to teaching. Mm-hmm. I stumbled into it. I think it was, I can't leave Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to leave the classroom. That would be even more embarrassing. So I got to stay here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So how do I want to stay here?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do I want to stay here? Do I want to stay here and look the way I was feeling, which was embarrassed and ashamed? Or do I want to get back to talking and mm-hmm. to making points? And so I think it was, it It wasn't always a deliberate I'm doing a therapeutic thing. This is a better therapeutic thing. I think I stumbled into, you know, what would later become my value, which is focus on the, the point of this teaching, which is to communicate ideas and worry less about making mistakes.
0: Mike, it sounds like when you ask yourself this key question, how do I want to stay here in the classroom when I'm teaching? That was a super powerful question to ask yourself that led you to figure out that you want to focus on teaching. Now, I find that super powerful because I know in my life and in the work I do with my clients, when we are struggling with any type of fear or anxiety or worry or panic sensations, if we manage to step back a little bit, and ask ourselves, how do I want to show up in this moment? Then we can decide how to organize our behaviors and which actions to take based on what is important for us in that moment.
1: Yeah. And having grown up kind of an anxious person, you know, I never went to therapy as a young person. I don't think that it was sort of in the culture I grew up in to go to therapy. It was sort of just pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of perspective. And it was also very internal. I didn't tell people I was an anxious person. I just was. And I think you learn how to, how to adapt to those situations in ways that later turned out to be pretty functional. You know, I don't know if that was luck or what that was, but it turned out to be pretty functional. So if I could handle anxiety this way, you know, can that translate into how I handle the moment in front of the students now? Again, I don't know that it was always this deliberate thought process, but I think that there was some previous scaffolding that had been set up years earlier, having dealt with a lot of anxiety, and that allowed me to, to tap into that previous learning and experience.
0: If I can ask a little bit more, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that when you started in the career there were also high standards about how you should perform, what type of professional you should be, and how you were doing all types of things to live up to those expectations. Do you mind sharing a little bit what are the things that you were doing to live up to those expectations at that time?
1: I did a lot of preparation, (laughs) you know, like it would be, so, I can tell a, a really quick uh, anecdote, which is that the school I was teaching at had never had a history of psychology course ever. And they, sang, they came to me as an adjunct and they said, Would you be willing to teach this course? We've never had it before. And I was like, Sure. <laughs> and so I had to read the entire book about two months before the class was supposed to start and construct an entire lesson for 15 weeks for 30 students. And talking about things like philosophy and the fundamentals of philosophy, I only took one course in undergrad in philosophy, and I'm pretty sure I didn't pay attention. So here I am trying to make this work. And and the the, the imposter syndrome showed up massively. The expectation I had set for myself having taught there for like two or three years already with good feedback. I have to live up to this. I have to rise to the challenge. This has to be the best course I've ever taught. This has to be the best course, the best history of psych course. And I don't have a comparison for that, but that was in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it perfectly. So there's a lot of over-preparation, a lot of reading and understanding and trying to to dismantle a concept and build it back up so that I could teach it to people. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so it's not just enough to read it off a slide. It's like give explanations from three different vantage points so people can really understand it. That took hours and hours, lots of stress. I had to sound smart. I had to make sure that the examples were perfect. And I think this helped me realize that perfect is more of a feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I never ended feeling perfect. I never achieved excellence or exceptionality. At least I never felt it. I always kept saying like, okay, I taught the class. I did a good job. The next class has to be better. I have to have better examples. I have to be, I have to be more likable, more entertaining, whatever it was. And so the bar kept getting raised. Mm -hmm. So what counted as being perfect or exceptional kept getting raised. So I looked at this And thought to myself, you know, as a therapist who treats this, um, watching it in real time going on in my own Mm -hmm. process, I was avoiding this, you know, you can call it like a one down relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm avoiding making mistakes because that is tantamount to failure Mm -hmm. internally and also the perception externally.
0: It's incredible that when we hold ourselves to high standards, we are chasing a feeling, a feeling that doesn't last forever, but we do all types of things to have that feeling. We read every single book that is out there. We Google for information. We keep asking others for more information. We try to read every journal article that has been published The challenge is that it's never enough. We always want more because we are masking our fears.
1: And the researching, you know, again, I can look at this now as an anxiety therapist, and I can say that the researching wasn't for information. It was in the pursuit of some certainty or the pursuit of some feeling that I never actually got. I'd get short bursts of it. Okay, I feel good about this. This sounds smart. This is going to be good. And then I'd second guess it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd go back and do it again. And it was kind of this experience that the phrase that I think comes out of a drug culture, which is called chasing the dragon. Mm-hmm. This idea that you're always chasing that first high, that, that moment where you were euphoric and every other hit of drugs after that is got to be that good or better. Of course, you never get there. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep taking more and more drugs. And this is sort of a non-chemical dependent version of that. I I thought at one point in time, I felt certain. Mm -hmm. I thought at one point in time, I felt self-assured. And I had to keep performing more and more and more to keep trying to get that feeling that I am still self-assured under this new paradigm, this new expectation level.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that every single person around you, every single person around me, yourself, and myself, we all play it safe. In one way or another way, we are managing our fears constantly. It just happens that sometimes we play it safe in a way that it's repetitive and we keep doing over and over without checking if it works in our life. If you look at the trajectory of how you handle this fear of making mistakes and how you handle these high standards about a professional that you should be, what would you say are the skills that led you to change to be where you are today?
1: I don't entirely know how to attribute that change. Some of it's deliberate. I think some of it's through exposures. Mm-hmm. Learning through doing up until a few years ago, I was sort of behind the scenes i was just I was a therapist I ran some you know some consultation groups locally, but no one really knew who I was and I made a concerted effort to put myself out there to comment on facebook groups to to participate in podcasts to throw my hat in the ring to present at conferences, and all of that came with. This I, I wanted to have this new professional challenge. I wanted to sort of test my metal, if you will. Mm-hmm. But all of that stuff, of, similar to teaching, all of those feelings of an imposter came back. Like, do I really know what I know? How can I talk? I can talk to students all day long. I taught for a decade, mm-hmm. and by the time I was done, it was like teaching was just like having a conversation. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could be a little bit more improvisational if I made a mistake because. I was comfortable through the exposure process, I suspect. As a therapist trying to put himself out there professionally, it's a whole different ball game. because now I'm speaking to people I look up to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, oh, I'm going to speak, and then someone in the back of the room who literally wrote the book that I'm building a lot of my concepts on is listening to me.
0: Very different experiences.
1: Very different experience. And trying to get through that is still an ongoing process for me as we speak.
0: I think it's an ongoing process, right? I don't think that facing our fears or doing the things that matter to us is a one-time thing. It's actually the opposite. I think, like you are saying, we're constantly working towards them. We're constantly checking how we are handling our fears. And I think it's very interesting with fear-based reactions is that they can easily generalize to many situations. That's why many times we go day by day living with a collection of fears and we learn to handle them. I know for myself, I am afraid of choosing the wrong partner, being a bad daughter, making poor financial decisions, making a fool of myself. So I don't think I ever had only a single fear. I think I had a collection of fears. I think that every single day there is going to be a worry thought, there is going to be an anxious thought, there is going to be a fearful situation that we encounter and that we have to figure out how to respond to. Let me ask a little bit about how is for you the process of doing all the things that you are doing these days as a professional, teaching your students, consulting, presenting at different conferences. How does it feel to be living your values?
1: I think I had something to say. Mm -hmm. Not that other people don't or that my way is particularly interesting. It's just... I think I have something to say. I look up to people who can teach really well, like the men, the mentors in my life I look up to, and I, in a way I feel jealous almost, that they have this sort of capacity to communicate c- complex ideas to very smart people and, and make them understand things just a little differently. And I kind of wanted to do that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I haven't been in the field forever, but I'm not a newbie and I felt like I've had enough experiences and enough ways of looking at something that could be helpful, Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: could be useful. So I wanted to challenge that next part of my career. I felt like that was important to me. I went from this socially anxious, shy person who never wanted to say anything to somehow mastering that and being able to communicate something in an interesting and helpful way.
0: It's incredible how once we figure out what is truly important to us, what's the stuff that matters, we are willing to put ourselves out there and we are willing to experience all the discomfort that we have to go through because it's important to us. It also looks like once we start taking these new micro steps, something shifts, And we discover new things that we enjoy and we discover new ways of doing things. Like in your case, you discover that you do have unique ways of presenting information, that you have your own style. And to my knowledge, you get a kick from doing that. (laughs) Now, the process of putting ourselves out there, it's not easy peasy. Maybe it sounds easy when I say it, but we know it's not easy. It's hard work. I know for myself many times when I am doing the things that are important to me, like writing, doing this podcast, chatting with you, attending conferences, sometimes my mind goes into this rabbit hole of doubts. My mind starts spinning over and over. How do you handle that if that happens to you? And how do you catch when your mind is in a rabbit hole?
1: That's a really good question. Let me see if I can articulate that. I think Mm -hmm. that for me, at least, there is this urgency that shows up Mm -hmm. that isn't there most of the time. Like some things are important. Some things are things I want to work on. I I put them on my list. I, I... i think about them but they don't feel urgent like fix it now do it now understand it now and so i think when i'm in the rabbit hole there's an urgency that shows up that doesn't tend to show up in other areas mm-hmm. to me that might be a, that might be a signal that i'm caught up in my own storytelling because the story is what convinces me that things are are dire urgent um completely and totally drop everything you're doing to focus on that. And, you know, those are kind of rare, at least in my life. Thankfully, I don't have a lot of urgencies, but my anxious mind, everything's an urgency Mm -hmm. and it needs to be dealt with.
0: I know what you mean. Our minds get very busy super quickly. It's like everything needs to be solved right now. I know for me, it's a little bit silly, but when I am in a rabbit hole mode or when I am very stuck in my head, I start frowning (laughs) and then I get worried about all the wrinkles that I have.
1: Yeah. I think learning those cues for yourself, right? And working with a therapist can be helpful with this too. Like they can spot cues that you might not be aware of. And if you can bring awareness to this process, like, look, when you get into an anxious state, a worried state, this is what you look like this is what you do and you can learn to spot that for yourself Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: then those can become markers that oh whoops I've shifted into this other process of thinking that isn't helpful
0: yeah I think that a lot of what we are doing in our lives and what we are teaching and coaching our clients is to know this how we are responding to a particular thought how we're responding sometimes to thinking with more thinking and to check how it really works, to discriminate when a response is effective versus when it's not. Now, the other area or the other aspect that comes along with the fear of making mistakes or holding into high standards that I see my clients struggling with and certainly I see myself struggling with is the imposter syndrome. What are your thoughts or what are your experiences dealing with an imposter syndrome?
1: I think that's the the new mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. I think it's one I want to climb, I can recognize it. I know what it is clinically. I know it's common amongst high-achieving, anxious, neurotic people like me. And so I, I realize that it's active, it's alive. I just don't want to feed it. I don't mm-hmm. want to pour gas on the fire if I can. So I need to find out what perpetuates it or perpetuates the imposter syndrome. And fundamentally, it's avoidance, like any anxiety disorder. You know, the more I avoid, the the bigger and scarier this experience is. And the more I buy into the thought process that I could be an imposter, that um, people would think of me as an imposter. And I have to sort of break that down and step back. So I think for me, it's saying yes to doing things like interviews, saying yes to doing things like writing projects, saying yes to all sorts of different opportunities that would normally make me incredibly uncomfortable because that's not my instinct. My instinct is to be the quiet person, the wallflower. People might be surprised about that, but that's true. You go again. Not being able to take a compliment
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right? If someone compliments you, the my instinct is normally to be like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And internally, it's like, the people are really nice. People are really kind. They're trying to make you feel comfortable, but inside their head, they're thinking, what is this Yahoo now? <laughs> and I got to, that's another signal for me mm-hmm. to go, okay, that's directly, that's the imposter syndrome thinking process. Mm-hmm. And if I can see, can you understand how the engine works? Right. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. That's a fuel pump, and that's the other part of the engine. I don't know anything about engines, but once you understand how the engine works, you can take it apart and put it back together. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same thing goes for this. So I understand how imposter syndrome works. I understand what perpetuates it. If I discover a new thing that perpetuates it, I then dismantle that through some process of challenging my thought process, um, finding out where that's wrong. Am I being black and white? Am I discounting? Mm-hmm. evidence to the contrary, you know, but also in a more act kind of way, you know, I'm moving further from my values. Mm-hmm. I'm moving away from what I, what I actually wanted to try to preserve a sense of comfort or safety. Mm-hmm. So don't risk people discovering that you're an imposter by putting yourself out there. That moves me further away from what I want professionally, not closer to it.
0: Yeah, it makes a huge difference to look at how we are organizing our behavior and what's making things worse for us. If we cannot step back and look at how we handle a particular thought, a particular fear, a particular emotion, then we won't be able to change it, right? To me, many times things bubble down to ask myself how I am handling this particular noise that is showing up. How am I responding to it? And is that response helpful or an unhelpful one? And of course, if it's helpful, it's going to help me to be the person I want to be. And if it's unhelpful, it's going to take me far away from that. Mike, let me ask you a question before we pause. If you were to have a coffee with any person you want, who would that be and why?
1: Wow. (laughs) I did not see that question coming. A cup of coffee with, and and you hit it, I love coffee. So that's right up my alley. With any person. Let me think about that. You know, I, I actually have had coffee with some of the people that I would normally, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago might have said I wanted to have coffee with. I think I'd probably like to have coffee with Barack Obama.
2: Ooh.
1: (laughs) I think, you know, I look at him as, especially nowadays as just this amazing intellectual driven uh, person who I think kind of sets, sets a new bar.
2: Mm -hmm. They
1: say don't ever meet your idols. Um, So I don't want to, maybe I'll knock on wood. Maybe I, won't have to ruin that idea. But I think it would be Barack Obama. I think we'd have a really cool conversation. I think I'd learn a lot. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. And uh, that's my answer.
0: Now, I'm super curious. What would you ask Obama?
1: Wow. What would I ask him? I think I'd want to know how he, like similar to the questions you were asking me, like
2: Mm.
1: how do you handle it all? You know, like, how do you get through the intense criticisms? How do you get through, you know, clearly being one of the most visible and critiqued people ever?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: How do you deal with that? I think there's got to be some kind of way of looking at it that he has that I think would be enormously helpful to pick his brain about. And I think it'd be a human moment. Mm -hmm. I'd have a lot of superficial questions to ask, but that would be the deep one.
0: Super cool. Mike, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having a real conversation and unpacking the fear of making mistakes. I'm super, super appreciative, and I hope we can chat again soon.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website. Playing it safe. That's Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon.